You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver and I, Niels Kastablansen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that uh, today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Rich last week, where we did quite a deep dive on how to use an ATR-based stop-loss strategy and much more. I would also encourage you, if you've missed the Wednesday episode, to go back and listen to Odette Galore, professor in economics at Brown University, discussing how we can explore and uncover new ways of thinking about the economy based on his book, The Journey of Humanity, The Origins of Wealth and Inequality. A really great conversation and very eye-opening when it comes to the topic of inequality. It is great to be back with you, Rob, after um, a little while. How are you doing? How have things been? Uh, yeah, I've had a good summer. Um, I was actually over your, your side of the, the channel mm-hmm. um, in, in Germany, in Switzerland, and Austria over the summer, which was nice. Um, and uh, I've had quite a, a nice and relaxing summer. And of course, the news here in the UK has been dominated by the, the death of our Queen, who died uh, a few about a week and a half ago now. So um, I think... Uh, it's it's a kind of funny situation to be in because obviously it's been a very long time since uh, since we've had a, a monarch die and uh, you know I think the UK is probably the, the 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 kind of the royalty in the UK is a a bigger deal than a lot of other countries that that still have um, kings and queens. So for example, in some of the Scandinavian countries, they they have kings and queens, but it's not such a big part of the national fabric. And uh, so yeah, it's been a, a very a very um, a bit weird actually, a bit of a weird time. So. Um, I think we've, you know, we've got the funeral on Monday, and I think uh, after that, we'll probably feel a sense of closure and be able to move on. But uh, yeah, it's been a, a strange, a strange week and a half, uh, at least from my perception. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I was actually spending the last uh, week in London, so I definitely sense the uh, the mood that you're talking about, and also it was very impressive to see all the people lining up to, um, you know, go past the uh, Queen's coffin and pay their respect uh, with long, long. Uh, or many many hours uh, of queuing up. But of course, the Brits are very good at queuing up. Um, I, I was going to say. I mean, that's really kind of two of our great national institutions: the monarchy and the queue. They're in one place. So, um, yeah, kind of, kind of in a way, sort of uh, the, the, a very meaningful tribute to the Queen to have to us doing our national sport on a on a kind of grand basis. So you yeah. mentioned the Scandinavian queens and kings. Actually, in Denmark, uh, my birth country. Um, we were actually celebrating our queen, her fiftieth uh, year uh, or anniversary on the on the throne as queen. So, uh, yeah, there were very strong ladies around um, in in that role. But in terms, speaking of queue, we've got queued up quite a um, wonderful lineup of questions. Um, very long um, because it's been a little while since you were last here. Um, but we also got a few uh, topics that. Um, you know, are kind of fun to dive into uh, as well. As always, let me just uh, acknowledge and thank every one of you who uh, took the time out to leave a rating and review on iTunes and Spotify. It is so nice to see them, uh, and I certainly read uh, all of them, so uh, I'm very grateful for that. Now, if you were, or if you are, a traditional long-only investor, perhaps the best thing that can be said about this week is 
It's over. Traders came into the week optimistic, with hopes sustained from the August employment situation, and many economists anticipated that the CPI would finally show a downtick and from the relentless pressure on interest rates, and that would finally moderate. But that is not exactly what happened. Instead, the CPI printed an unwelcome uptick across most categories and reinforced the need for higher interest rates. And while the Fed sat on the sidelines post-report, uh, bond traders acted decisively, pushing the two-year note 20 basis points higher uh, on the day and ultimately ending the week 32 basis points higher. Uh, the worse-than-expected inflation report torched the equity narrative that the Fed is close to an equilibrium point in overnight rates. Equity investors had interpreted that as meaning that they are close to their first rate cut, all of which was seen as a reason to buy stocks, but instead the S&P 500 tumbled more than 5% for the week. And then after the close of the bell on Thursday, FedEx pre-announced their earnings to disclose an absolutely abysmal quarter based what um, what they termed as a global slowdown in economic activity. And according to Deutsche Bank, or one Deutsche Bank analyst, I should say, the FedEx miss relative to their expectation was the worst in 20 years. The market hopes that FedEx was the exception, but as they say, where there is smoke. Next week brings more data from the housing market and more importantly, the FOMC decision. Another 75 basis point rate hike is very likely with the post-meeting press conference offering clues as to what we should expect will come next. If we see another 75 basis points in November at that meeting, this will bring the overnight rate corridor to 4%. And speaking about inflation and interest rates, let me just mention that one of our previous global macro guests, Jim Bianco, was out saying on Macro Voices this week that, um, you know, and I should say for context, uh, that we and they were discussing uh, a lot of the historical issues regarding the lack of inflationary pressures we saw for the past um, couple of decades. But he went on, and I'm just quoting a little bit from the conversation, he went on to say, so those were, were the bedrocks of why we had no inflation for 40 years, and they're all disappearing. Um, and that's where I think people are struggling. They all say, no, this is just a one-time thing because of the pandemic, we're going right back to the 2020 or 2019 situation. But I don't think we are. I think we've got to start to realize that there are secular changes that have come into play. And yes, we might not see a persistently 9% inflation world. If we are, we're, we're in a world of deep hurt. But we might be in a persistent 4 to 5% inflation world. And that's not a good place to be because that means neutral on interest rates is for it's probably five or maybe five and a half percent. And restrictive on interest rates is something higher than that. And those numbers, uh, the market are just not ready to accept. And by the way, all things um, that the gold box have been arguing for, like inflation and geopolitical tension, has all come to pass. They have been absolutely right. But gold is now in a bear market. So it just goes to show that you can be right and still lose money. Another reason why trend following doesn't believe in prediction. Anyways, let's talk what's been standing out uh, for you. I don't know how much you've actually been able to follow the markets uh, on your holiday, um, but I am curious to know what's been um, going on in from your radar's point of view. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, it's funny actually. Um, there's a guy I follow on Twitter who's also a systematic trader, and he's he actually recently put a series of posts up saying, "Oh wow, apparently this big things are going on in the market," and I hadn't even noticed because, you know, trading systematically, you know, um, unless you actually are, are actually following the business news, and I obviously haven't been, you don't necessarily know notice big things going on if they're not directly affecting your positions, and sometimes even if they are directly affecting your positions. But but anyway, so. Um, so if I look at the last three months, which is roughly how long it's been since I've uh, I've, I've been on the podcast, then um, um, I'm basically in a in a kind of modest drawdown. I hit a high, an intra uh, high water mark uh, in early June, uh, dropped a bit in the first half of June, and I've pretty much been flatlining ever since. So uh, over the last three months, I'm down about five percent. Um, and uh, if I just have a quick look at the uh, where those losses have come, so I've lost some money in crude oil, in gas, and wheat, soybeans, soy oil. So kind of in a little bit of a reverse of some of these very strong commodity trends that we saw in the first half of the year. And if I look at the winners, actually my biggest winner, interestingly, is, is the Brazilian US dollar rate. But I've also done well in, in uh, yen dollar and euro dollar, so good performance there from, from currencies. Um, also some positive from, from bonds and, and fixed income. Uh, I've got a little report that I, I do which looks at market moves over the last three months and um, sort of normalises them by standard deviation just to get a feel for kind of how surprising they are, if you like. Um, so if I and that, then it's a nice little report because I scan quite a big range of markets. It sometimes shows up markets that you wouldn't necessarily think about. So, for example, oats are actually the biggest loser over the last three months. Uh, but also gasoline and heating oil, uh, red wheat, iron hasn't done so well. Um, now, the best market, interestingly, that I track um, is Ethereum. Um, and, um, you know, there's, there's been the news recently about this this big merge, and we may we may get time to talk about that a bit later. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, so maybe some of that movement was in anticipation of that, because that's certainly, I'm not seeing any, I'm not seeing Bitcoin up there, which is the other crypto future I track. So that's kind of interesting. Um, but also a couple of uh, US stocks. So you may think, well, stocks have done very badly, but interestingly, a couple of sectors have done very well. So I've got US utilities and US discretionary consumer doing very well. So, you know, I think I think as we look at the big market moves, we don't often see what's going on kind of underneath that. I mean, so FedEx is probably a good example because I would imagine that FedEx was a company that did very well during the pandemic because, you know, we were all staying at home probably getting a lot of stuff delivered to us. The delivery companies, um, you know, were, were probably doing very well. So, you know, in the same way that firms like Peloton were doing very well during the pandemic and Netflix, and then afterwards have suffered as we've kind of reverted back to our previous habits of actually going out and buying stuff rather than just getting it delivered. So maybe maybe that's the FedEx story, and maybe there are, there are still sectors of the economy that are going to do well. Um, but, you know, in terms of if you're a stock picker, then these times when, you know, the, the, the environment's cycling from one... It, one sort of state to another are often times to pick up really good value stocks because different sectors go in and out of fashion um, as, as the you know as, as the economy cycles. But but anyway, um, so yeah. So the other the other kind of mar- the, I guess the main market news for me um, over the last um, few days has been the pounds. The pound actually dropped to a a low. It's not been at since nineteen. Uh, let me see if I can get this right. 85 years since, in fact, since March 1985, um, it actually dropped briefly below 114 big figure, um, although it's slight, I think it closed slightly above that yesterday. I mean, 80, 1985, so Niels, you're a little bit older than me, but in 1985, I was, I was just, actually, in March 85, I was just uh, a little 10-year-old boy, 
Um, so, uh, you know, you, you can try and imagine what, what, what that looked like uh, and how, you know, the, we, we talk about returning to a, an environment of higher inflation and, you know, the early 80s and 70s obviously were a time of higher inflation, but, but they were just a very different world. And I had a quick look, for example, at the, the, the music charts in 1985, just in March 1985. So uh, just quickly run you through the top five just to give you a feel for for, uh, for the time. how different life was. So we had Private Dance by Tina Turner up there. Uh, the Heat Is On by Glenn Frey, which is a, is a great song. Um, one More Night by Phil Collins. Material Girl by Madonna. And number one, uh, when the pound was last at this level against the dollar, was Can't Fight This Feeling by REO Speedwagon. So Appropriate. I mean, I, I can see some nostalgia, some nostalgia creeping into your face as you, you hear me name those songs, Niels. So, uh, and the other, the other thing that happened uh, roughly around the time when the pound was last at this level um, was the the Oscars, uh, the the uh, Oscars, and the um, Oscars are quite interesting because um, do you know in 1985 which film was was the standout performer at the Oscars? Oh, that is a good question. Um, no, I don't I actually don't remember. I'll give you a clue. It's a it's a film about a uh, a German musician. A German musician. Mm. So it's Amadeus. Okay. The film Amadeus, which there's a I, reason I, why I, I don't remember that. I don't think exactly. I saw it. I don't remember it being an absolutely brilliant film. In fact, the only the main thing I remember about it was the theme tune, which was this kind of uh, rocked up uh, Mozart um, song. Which you know, so if you don't know that song, then go and look it up on your favorite music streaming service, and then and don't blame me if you hate it because it really is a an iconically poor '80s song. And I was very surprised to see that that film was was actually better than, for example, The Killing Fields, which is another film in those Oscars. It was actually a much better film. But anyway, so maybe with a pound at this level, we're, we're kind of reaching back to a time when when music, in my opinion, was better, but I'm not sure about the films, the quality of the films. Maybe they weren't so good. Uh, but anyway, uh, back to the the serious business of, 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 of trend following. So if one thing I like to do is look at my current risks. My current risk is still pretty low. So um, I'm very much in this position of having made a lot of money in the first few months of the year and then kind of have a drawdown, reduced positions as trends become unclear. And I'm kind of husbanding my capital, if you like. Um, and uh, yeah, so my risk is currently 7% annualized standard deviation versus target 25. So that's obviously quite low. Um, my biggest risk is probably in bonds. So I have a, a, a reasonable size short bond position. I also have a um, reasonably side long positions in ags and oil and gas although not as strong as as before um i'm i've got um a a, a sort of modest position short metal short vol so you know it, it's not really a very very clear message is coming out of the portfolio at the moment because there aren't really any any strong trends out there uh, my biggest shorts in u.s 20-year bonds my biggest long is in is in as uh, in gas and rehab gas so um, the kind of story of you know rising interest rates and increasing inflation is still there, but but not in such a strong way, at least in the way my portfolio is currently positioned. So, so yeah, very much a time of wait and see, I think, for for my portfolio at least. There's nothing in there that's a big strong kind of outright position, um, and uh, I don't actually, for example, have a a position on in in pound dollar. So. Um, so no strong opinion there, or you could argue that I'm being patriotic by not not betting against my country at this time of of national national mourning. Yeah, I guess I uh, thanks for that sort of historical uh, walk down memory lane. That was uh, interesting. Um, you know, I guess it goes to show when you mentioned that last time the pound was here was thirty years ago or thereabouts, or maybe even 
yeah, um, more, more than 30 years ago. Um, it just goes to show, I, I think, that, that markets tend to go in cycles, right? And, uh, and uh, the other thing that I think is interesting is that as far as I'm aware, if you think about socioeconomics, I think they believe certainly that uh, the mood of the time um, is reflected in the art, right? In the music, in the films that are popular at the time. And that kind of tells you where we're heading. Now, I have no idea who's uh, last were winning the Oscars or the charts in, uh, you know, this year. I don't really follow it that closely, um, but maybe there's something to it. Um, and um, and obviously, as a as as trend follows, we we clearly believe that markets will continue to have these um, bigger cycles. Uh, and and maybe and and this is actually something that is kind of interesting. I think a lot of people, and just to digress a little bit from our normal agenda, I think a lot of people, uh, because of trend followers, generally quite strong uh, performance in the last, um, you know, say a couple of years, but in particular in 2022, I think a lot of them feel that maybe um, they missed the move if they hadn't been invested in trend following. Um, it's certainly a question that I have come across uh, recently. Um, but on the other hand, going back to the cycles, I mean, if we think, if we believe in cycles and a lot of money has been made from being short uh, bonds and fixed income uh, by trend follows for sure. Um, but if we believe in cycles and we believe that the last interest rate cycle literally just ended like a year ago after 40 years of heading down, I mean, this really is just the beginning then. And so... In that sense, you could say, well, no, absolutely not. Um, it doesn't suggest that you've missed anything. Uh, on the contrary, we could be looking at quite a long period of time with, like Jim Bianco is saying, much higher interest rates, much higher inflation, which at least historically has given uh, more opportunities for people who are betting on divergent uh, market conditions rather than the stable carry regime. So... Don't know if you have any thoughts about that before I. Yeah, I mean, I I find it hard to imagine that we'd get to the levels of interest rates that we saw in say the early eighties, because um, I think there there is a difference in that. Central banks have learned and changed their behaviour since the nineteen seventies. So the you know the oil shock of the nineteen seventies was something that had never happened before, and it happened after something else had never happened before, which was the free floating of currencies post Bretton Woods. Um, so the world was in a unique situation and, and economists and central banks did not have the tools or the understanding to to cope. Um, now, they do have a better understanding, I think, of how the economy works and, and, and better tools and, um, and you know, new tools like QE, which obviously, or QT, which is the reverse of it, which weren't available in the 1970s. Um, now, those tools aren't, of course, necessarily that effective. Um, to, you know, the, I think increasing interest rates in the face of a you know, supply side shock is is to an extent, and if you excuse my phrasing here, pissing in the wind. Um, but it, it's still better than kind of blind panic and doing nothing, which is, I think, what would have happened before. Um, um, the, the other thing that's potentially interesting, I think, and this is perhaps more notable in the UK, but I did feel like during the, the 10 years of um, austerity under the Cameron government, so from 2010 to about 2020, um, you know, the, the Bank of England and the government were fighting each other, right? The fiscal policy was extremely aggressive. Like they were trying to cut the deficit very, very sharply. At the same time, the monetary policy was extremely, um, you know, open, and they were trying to, you know, they were doing QE and trying to get money into the economy. So they were kind of fighting each other. 
And I think now we're almost seeing the reverse in that the Bank of England is desperately trying to tighten interest rates at the same time that the government under our new leader, Liz Truss, has suddenly embarked on this massive and not very kind of traditionally conservative, you know, um, plan to spend huge amounts of money on um, providing households with, um, you know, um, the ability to stop to pay these high energy bills. Um, so there, there's a huge, massive kind of fiscal deficit being going to be run over the next, at least certainly over the next year or so. At the same time, the Bank of England is frantically raising rates and tightening monetary policy. So again, we have these two things fighting each other. Um, so, so um, you know, that that's kind of inter an interesting thing, because although we do have these new tools and stuff, it's we still and we have the independence of central banks, which is great. But sometimes the independence of central banks means that the central bank can be desperately trying to do something at the same time that the government's trying to do the exact opposite. Um, so, so, yeah, I don't think we'll see, you know, interest rates of, I don't know what where US 10 years got to if you go back to like 1982, whether they got to like 20 percent, probably close to that. Right. Um, but but that wouldn't surprise me if we saw you know high single digit interest rates certainly uh, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I I, um, I love it when you yeah. say that um, you know you describe how uh, the new uh, prime minister in the UK has come out with this massive spending um, spree at a time where inflation is at least ten percent in the UK. Um, yet you know uh, you also suggest that we've learned a lot since the seventies. You know, it doesn't seem to me that we've yeah. learned a well, very much. I guess what I'm saying, I guess what I'm saying is the central bankers and economists have learned, but governments still think that the, the best thing to do is just effectively to buy votes, right? Yeah, but having said I mean, that, on a, yeah. on a serious note, I mean, okay, so what did they learn? Because haven't they been saying that inflation was just transitory for however long? I mean, this is the thing that, yeah, we'd like to think that they've learned something over these decades, but to me, that's just... We're all human beings, I guess, and maybe it's it's for political reasons that they couldn't say anything else, or maybe they, which I hope they didn't, really believe that it was transitory when it, when the whole world, I mean, they could just open their Twitter account and have lots of clever people suggest that they, this doesn't look transitory when you increase spending and deficits and blah blah blah. So it is interesting. Yeah. I mean. It is yeah. interesting, and actually, I mean, we don't I know what the future will hold. That's the whole point. I yeah. know, and actually, you know what? In terms of going back to the nineteen seventies, I don't know if you remember that in the nineteen seventies, I think it was Nixon had this this phrase, "Whip inflation now," W I N, and the little badge is made up. And you come forward today, and you've got Biden saying, basically, passing, trying to pass laws to make inflation illegal. Uh, maybe I'm being too optimistic, and maybe actually, certainly, politicians still think that by the sheer force of will. I know they can they can um, stop stop inflation happening. Um, so yeah, I no. Well, anyways, I mean, from a trend following point of view, um, just to add to what you said, it certainly looks to me like uh, there are still positive winds blowing in uh, September. Uh, so far, it looks like some of these macro themes that we've been um, positioned for continues to uh, play out. Um, you know, certainly fixed income uh, looks like it was the best sector once again uh, in the last week or so. Um, with uh, both short and long-term yields um, moving higher, uh, of course, because of the CPI number that came out, but also the dollar continues to march higher. Um, and there's no sign still, really, uh, of any parabolic blow-off. So this could be uh, continuing for a little while longer. I think with equities, I think it's really down to your time timeframe. Um, I don't think there's any hard and fast rule as to whether 
trend followers are making or losing money at the moment. I also think it's probably quite mixed uh, when you look at different types of uh, uh, equity markets. Um, grains, meats um, probably contributed a little bit positively this week um, and metals uh, probably not so much. And I think uh, the biggest pullback in performance uh, for trend followers would have come from energies. I think you suggested that as well, uh, Rob. And um, they're still under a lot of pressure despite the fact we're talking about an energy crisis. Um, and um, and I do think certainly the longer-term trend followers are still holding on to some long exposure. And uh, this week alone, we saw heating oil dropping uh, 11%. So that uh, obviously would have cost a little bit of money. My own trend barometer is around 41 uh, at the close of yesterday. And uh, so that's kind of a neutral-ish um, level. I think yesterday, Friday, was probably mixed for CTAs. And if I look at the numbers so far this month, um, beta 50 up 73 basis point, up 15 and a half for the month, uh, sorry, for the year. SOCGEN CTA index, exactly the same, up 73 basis point for the month, up 22% for the year. SOCGEN trend up 1.34%, uh, up almost 30% for the year. And the SOCGEN short-term traders index up about a half a percent and up 116 for the year. Com uh, comparing that, we have the MSCI index uh, down 2.22 uh, for September so far, and now it's down more than 20% again uh, for the year. And the world government bond index just can't catch any break this year, down another 1.4% uh, for the month, and the S&P down 2% for the month, down 18 and three quarters for the year. All right, Rob, are you ready for what I can only suggest is a long list of uh, questions from our community, which we appreciate. Some of them, of course, have been building up. So um, they were asked uh, a couple of months ago when you started your uh, your holiday. So let's see how we go and we'll keep some of the uh, topics that you brought along uh, to the end and see how far we go. Um, the first question here is from uh, Joachim. Uh, Joachim says, um, this is relating, I should say, the headline is expanded universe of markets and dyna dynamic optimization. Now, you've explained this concept um, a while back. So if people go back on the podcast and find your episodes, they will they will find a, quite a detailed explanation of what you did. Um, so anyways, here are some questions. He says, Rob found quite a few more markets that were available and tradable as, as a um, consequence of dynamic optimization. And here are the questions. One, did the dynamic optimization in itself make more markets tradable? When comparing the same universe with and without the optimization, the optimized version performed better. The greedy algorithm is cool, almost like searching for a twin portfolio, but settling for, um, but settling for a pretty good uh, lookalike. So I'm going to, and then the follow-up question is, uh, two, um, but what's actually going on? What is the reason for this improvement? Are there information in correlated markets that can be used in other markets? If so, um, then we are not only trading price itself, we're using intra-market as a signal. This is not cross-sectional momentum trend following, but something else. Okay. Um uh, okay, so I think there's a bit of confusion. When when I said the optimized version performed better, it doesn't actually perform better. So with the same amount of capital. So the idea behind behind the dynamic optimization is 
if you had, say, 50, 100 million dollars, you could trade 100, say, 100 futures markets quite easily, 100 very liquid futures markets. Um, I don't have that kind of capital in my trading account. I've got uh, about half a million dollars, say. Um, so I, I could only probably trade 20, 25, maybe 30 futures instruments. And, and you know, as we, we say on this podcast over and over again, and it's probably the one thing that all of, all of us agree on without question, apart from the fact that trend following is the best strategy out there. Um, but the other thing that we agree on is that diversification across markets is, is really the way to, to realize additional returns. And this, and this is particularly true in, in trend following. Um, so, you know, the, the, going from a single market to going to 100 markets, um, in my research, you know, I, I see something like a four to five-fold improvement in, in risk-adjusted return, which is, you know, pretty extraordinary, right? There aren't many places you can get that kind of improvement. Um, so the idea behind the dynamic optimization is to effectively say, well, given the limited amount of capital I have, how close can I get to that big portfolio, which I can't get, given the constraint that we can only buy Unlike stocks, we can only buy futures contracts in these sometimes very big, chunky contract sizes. So it, whether it's better or not, well, the the, the, the optimised portfolio, if I was to run it with the same amount of capital, wouldn't it would be the same, right? It would say, well, yeah, you've got $100 million, so you can actually hold the best portfolio. What it does do is, is it improves the performance versus just having a fixed set of, say, 20, 25, 30 instruments. Um, so it allows me to capture... And let's get, put a figure on it. Say ninety percent of the improvement I could get from going from, you know, a twenty-five to a hundred market portfolio allows me to capture ninety percent of that improvement roughly. I can't quite get it all because at the end of the day, you know, the, I, there might be a market that does particularly well in one, the one year, and I just can't get a position in it, um, you know, because of the the capital constraints. So it never never quite gets there. Um, so I agree that the the greedy algorithm, which is a technique I use, is cool. It's very isgris, it's quite fun. Um, it's a bit of a leap in the dark, um, and I've been discussing this with some people recently because you do have to have a lot of faith in the fact that it's working. Because, for example, I've got a very strong signal in gold at the moment, but no position in gold. But I do have a position in silver. So you know, it's kind of it, you can see. Okay, well, that's kind of makes sense. Silver sort of substituting for gold, even though it hasn't got such a, a strong a strong forecast. But but you know. You have to kind of trust it, really, and you have to just have to trust the implementation, the code, and the, and the technique, and trust it's working. Um, so the first question actually is a, a little bit wrong, I think, in its assumption. Um, so when he says, what's the reason for this improvement? Well, as I said, there isn't really an improvement, but I, he does bring up an interesting point, which is this idea of using information from other markets. Um, and um, the, the one thing I, I've, I've done before... Um, and is discussed in my new book, if I may mention that, um, is is to is to say, well, let let's not just trend follow, say S and P. Look at the S and P price, use that to forecast where S and P is going. Look at the FTSE, use that to forecast where FTSE is going. But to take all the equities together and construct a a single kind of, you can think of it as a bit like MSCI World in the sense that it's a bit like an equity of all indices. But unlike MSCI World, I, I don't market cat weight and I, I use volatility weighted as well. Um, but it's, you can think of it as me constructing some kind of index of all equity futures, index futures, and then trend following that. That gets somewhere, gets to about three quarters of the performance of trend following all of these things individually. So what that's telling me is that almost, not almost all, but the majority of the, the kind of trend that's coming in when a market is trending is a trend in the entire asset class. 
and what's left over is a kind is kind of you know the, this sort of idiosyncratic noise if you like um, and that's quite good because it means for example that another way of of performing well if you haven't got much capital is to actually look at the trend for an entire asset class and then choose a couple of markets that you can actually afford to hold positions in to kind of implement that trend. You will still do better if you can trade everything, of course, uh, or trade more markets, absolutely. Um, so there is, he's right to say that there is effectively intermarket information that you can use. Um, but there is, there's actually, the dynamic optimization does do that implicitly, but there's actually an explicit way of doing it that's much simpler, which is just to effectively trend follow equities as an asset class, bonds as, as, as an asset class, and use that as, as part of your model. Mm. Okay, cool. All right. Then the follow-up question um, is um, adding non-tradable markets. Rob added markets that were not tradable. Um Guess they were only used as signal generators. If the answer in two is that there are information outside the traded instruments that can be used to improve signals, then this seems logic. Does this, does, and then I think it, uh, then he talks about, does thin mean that it might be fruitful to add non-tradable, non-future markets time series? Yeah, so... What I do when it's when he says non-tradable, basically these are markets that don't meet my requirements, and I've got two main requirements to trade a market. Uh, actually, three. One is, am I allowed to trade it? You know, so for example, I'm not allowed to trade, say, the U.S. Um, sector futures. I'm not allowed to trade them. Um, some people aren't allowed to trade crypto futures in the U.K. You have to be a so-called um, professional um, investor under under Mifid, um, and um, you know, there are maybe other restrictions wherever you live. Second thing I'm looking for is volume. I want sufficient volume. So for me, that's at least 100 contracts a day. And then I have a second filter related to what the volume relates to in terms of annualized dollar risk as well. Um, and then the third constraint is cost. So markets that are too expensive to trade on a risk-adjusted basis, I, 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 I won't trade them. However, with all of those markets, I still capture prices for them and I still calculate forecasts for them. So they do go into this big dynamic optimization, but then the dynamic optimization knows that it can't trade these markets and therefore will ignore them. So what that means is that, um, let, I'm trying to think of a, yeah, let's take the US stock sector futures. Information about what the US stock sector futures are doing will allow me to form a better opinion of where the US where US stocks are going generally than if I just looked at the S&P 500 because it's just giving me a effect implicitly you can think of it as a more more bits of data right and more bits of data are always going to be good um so that, that that's that's the effect that's happening there so that's exactly right that's why I, I have all these a lot of I probably got a hundred markets I am trading or could trade 50 or so that that don't meet these these requirements. The other reason I, I track these other 50 is that things change, right? Maybe, you know, a market that's on the verge of being tradable suddenly becomes a lot more liquid and then then I will start trading that market. So uh, because it's quite a lot of work to get data and set markets up, because I'm doing everything in an automatic way, it's much easier for me personally just, just to have a lot of markets I'm not trading and be collecting prices for and just monitoring. And then when they meet my liquidity requirements, I can just flick the switch and start trading them very, very easily. Um, so that's the other reason why, even if you're not using the same techniques I am to trade, it's still worthwhile, I think, having a kind of bank of markets in your back pocket, if you like, that, that you're getting data for, you know, assuming there's no actual cost to getting that data and assuming that there's no extra work involved, which 
you know, wouldn't apply if you weren't, say, an automated trader. It's definitely worth having a, a bank of markets that you're monitoring sure. for future trading potential. All right. Okay. Um, let's move on to um, a couple of questions from uh, Kristen. Kristen writes, I'm a long-time listener of the Systematic Investor podcast series. There are some valuable nuggets in every episode, and your conversations have helped me a lot. Well, that's very kind of you to say, Kristen. Uh, Niels, did you write this question? Come on, be honest. <laughs> now, I have a feeling that most of these questions came from some of your family members using different uh, different <laughs> names. Anyway, okay. a few episodes back, uh, Rob uh, clustered the different futures markets according to their risk-return characteristics instead of a more classical approach, stocks, bonds, currencies. Which method and time frame did he use? Question mark. Does he furthermore think such a classification approach uh, makes sense if you run a risk parity type strategy? Keep up the good work. But before you answer that, um, there is a second question. Then you can kind of deal with the whole thing. Uh, since Rob has since Rob hasn't been on the show after his holiday, well, we're changing that today. I want to follow up my questions regarding Rob's non-traditional classification approach. I would be interested what Rob thinks about how frequent one should re-update the classification every six months, every year, maybe even uh, less frequent, or what his gut feeling um, or his backtest uh, is suggesting how often assets change their characteristics and move from one bucket to another. If only uses um, if one uses any classification of the potential assets in his trend-following portfolio or a multi-asset portfolio like a risk parity, to limit the risk to one sector or asset class, i.e. a max percentage to energies. The update frequency of such classification can have a big impact on the portfolio versus a more classical approach where you just do it in these sort of standard classification stocks, bonds, currencies. Anyways, those were the questions from Kristen. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad um, you remember the... Um the, the piece I did about the classification because yeah. I, I do, do think it's quite a, a neat little thing you to do. You had some funny what I did, tickers as well. I remember that That's right. There were some yeah. interesting results, yeah. yeah. So um, I, I use correlations, basically. So um, the first thing to, to say is, well, what's the, the best way of estimating correlations in, in the sense that you want to predict correlations? So, um, you know, in, in terms of estimating, say, standard deviations, um, looking back about a month, gives you the best forecast of future standard deviations. For correlations, um, you want to be a bit slower. I use roughly about a six-month look back for correlations. Um, and then the the actual classification was just using a, stand, a kind of standard machine learning clustering algorithm. And to be honest, you'd get very similar results um, regardless of, of what, what method you used. And the key thing is the correlations that are going into that uh, clustering process. Um, so in, in terms of timeframes, yes, I'm using a six-month correlation. That implies that the correlations are going to change quite slowly, right? Um, so um, it also is going to take quite a lot of noise out of the process because you can imagine if you were measuring correlations, say, every month, obviously correlations on a month-by-month basis might be changing quite a lot, and you would see changes from between groupings quite frequently. Over six-month movements, probably less so. Um, I haven't actually um, formally checked to see kind of how what the movement in between clusters is like, um, but you know it wouldn't surprise me to see movement. Of course, because markets do change their character and the way they trade, and bigger bigger trends happen. So, for example, you know let's take a, a very obvious example, which is the correlation between bonds and equities. Correlation between bonds and equities for much of the last. 20, 20 years, 25 years, has been close to zero, actually strongly negative. Over the last year or so, it's been positive. 
Um, so, you know, both bonds and equities last week got absolutely hammered, for example. Um, so that's an example of where, you know, um, correlations have changed and that would have meant that the, the, the grouping, the kind of bond equity grouping would have looked very different if you'd used correlations to construct some kind of some kind of clusters there. Um, it, it doesn't make sense for risk parity type strategy. I mean, that you know, that this is kind of what it's really made for because what you are really trying to do is with risk parity is identify, you know, what your independent buckets of risk are. So this kind of clustering is, is a very natural approach for that, definitely. Um, in terms of using it for um, some kind of risk limiting process, so um, I, in fact, I don't actually do that. So I don't limit my risk in say bonds and equities i limit the risk of my total portfolio at quite a high level um, that approach does not make sense in trend following okay i'll say that right right now you shouldn't do this this is one kind of uh, area where um, I'm, I'm very much a back a back to basics person uh, and the, the reason for it is this if you think about say um, the last year um, if you'd limited your risk in say the energy sector you would have probably given up on quite a big proportion of those huge gains that that we saw from the energy sector in in the in the, in, the, in the first few months of this year um you know you really you don't think about trend following is you do not know where the returns are coming from in the future right you very much don't know you're kind of placing your your bets all over the roulette table um and if you limit your your exposure in in one particular area as the trend starts to strengthen then you're very much giving up the, you know the potential upside that you're going to get from those markets so limiting your risk concentration in a single asset class is something i would stay away from it might make sense to do so but only at a very very high level and you know in other words you know um obviously one disadvantage of having all of your eggs in the energy basket is you know when the markets turned turn against you you potentially lose a lot um if if you you don't have the stomach for those then a kind of those short drawdowns. Well, maybe you're in the wrong strategy, frankly, because it's part of, kind of part of the game. But but you know it, it's but there is an argument maybe for introducing a you know a, a cap that doesn't come in very often that will give up. It means you will give up some of your potential gains, but you'll also give up. You know you won't your downside will look a little bit better when those reversals happen. But generally speaking, I would avoid using this, this this particular risk limit measure. Yeah, I mean, it is actually an interesting discussion because it's certainly something that uh, I've come across as well in terms of uh, conversations. And uh, as much as I agree with you uh, on that, um, and obviously depending on um, what kind of, how, how you've designed your overall trend-following system, intuitively, and, and we know that some um, of the bigger managers are, are looking in that direction, and that is, should you at some point cap your overall risk to, say, fixed income or et cetera, et cetera. But just going back to the previous, it would have been interesting to see if, for example, and, uh, you know, in terms of moving from one um, cluster to another, whether crypto has moved into tech stocks. I don't know if you... Yeah, yeah. If, yeah, yeah. So. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think when I did my clustering exercise, uh, crypto sat with the metals. Okay. Um, which, you know. Gold? Um, the, well, yeah. I mean, the other the other place you might have expected to see it was potentially in FX. Um, but that that's where it sat. Um, so that, that was what it was certainly most correlated to when I last did that exercise. But obviously, the market environment's a bit different now, and uh, it may well be moved somewhere else. It may well be with equities, yeah. you know, more, more close to equities. That wouldn't surprise me at sure. all. Sure. All right. Okay, we're going to move to uh, the Scandinavian countries. We're going to have a question from uh, Christopher. 
Um, and uh, he's writing, hello and greetings from Sweden. Thanks for a wonderful podcast. I've learned uh, uh, a lot listening to all of you. This question is specifically for Rob. I've read both Systematic Trading and Smart Portfolios and implemented a lot from both books in my portfolio. I have a risk weighting of 60% equities, 24% trend, CTAs, and 16% bonds, and give each mutual fund a average uh, forecast based on trend Indicators calculated in Excel. I also use volatility adjust to adjust positions based on a 20-week rolling standard deviation and in the end normalize all positions so they are add up to 100%. My question is how to treat CTAs within this framework. To me, it doesn't make sense to trend follow the CTAs. They are already doing that. Nor volatility adjust them based on recent vol. Should I just leave their forecast static and allow the allocation to CTAs to grow? As equities and bonds get reduced and vice versa, uh, allow the CTA positions to be reduced if, for example, equities rally and get a strong forecast. And then there's a bonus question if there's time. If you already have government a government bond allocation and because a portfolio uh, and because of portfolio limitation was forced to decide between allocating to investment grade corporate bonds or high yield bonds, what would you pick? All righty. Thanks, Christopher. Uh, yes, so uh, I'm, I'm glad to, this is. He's clearly a very diligent student of my work, and, and I'm very, very impressed with. Or highly paid. I mean, could be both. Or, or a highly, a highly paid stooge who's been paid, asked to ask this question. Yeah, definitely. Um, either way, uh, it's a great question. Uh, <laughs> so just to be clear, what's going on here? So um, if you think about a, a classic kind of um, simple long only. Uh, bonds equity strategy, uh, which you can implement nicely with mutual funds or ETFs. And what you do is just you can look at the the trend in equities, the trend in bonds, uh, and adjust. You know, let's say you start with sixty forty portfolio, um, adjust your sixty forty portfolio with put more in equities when equities are rallying versus bonds and vice versa. And I do something exactly like this myself in my long only uh, portfolio. You won't be surprised to hear I practice what I preach. Um, now the the awkward thing is when we we add a, another asset into this, like like CTAs. Um, as, he, as he says, it's not clear that you should use the same approach with, with CTAs. Um, now this is one of those questions where there isn't really a right answer. Um, I can tell you what I do myself, um, which is I I actually because I look at everything in risk in risk terms anywhere rather than cash terms. Um, I actually look at the, the the current risk of my my CTA bucket portfolio, if you like. Um, and or the, so the amount of capital that it, that's allocated to it because of you know it, it sort of automatically adjusts as I lose or gain money in my account. Um, but broadly speaking, that's not going to change very much. It just gets a little bit lower, and I'm in a drawdown. So I'm in like a, I'm at the moment I'm in a uh, uh, like an eight percent drawdown or something like that. So it's a little eight percent lower than normal, you know. So it moves in within quite a tight range. But broadly speaking, effectively, I treat my my CT allocation as fixed, and that seems to be the simplest thing to do. Um, so, uh, especially as if you're doing this via a mutual fund, mutual funds, there are potentially likely to be exit penalties, bid off, bid offer costs when trading in and out of things. And those are more likely to be higher in your CTA usage type fund than in, say, you know, a bond ETF or an equity ETF, which you could trade very cheaply. So the simplest and probably the cheapest thing to do is to, is just to keep that 24% constant and almost just ignore that, just leave that in a, in a corner. 
and then just focus on the rest of the portfolio, the other, um, what was it, 76% that you've got, and then just do your, your you know, your, your your sort of trend-following trading strategy with that. I, I would advocate that approach. Um, you know, the, you, you could argue that you can start looking at things like the autocorrelation of the CTA returns and trying to time them, put money in and out, and, you know, this weak evidence out there. And Winton, for example, put papers out about this this effect. But it, it I, I would be surprised if you could overcome the transaction costs because it is quite a weak effect uh, that's going on there. So just keep it simple. Um, and I would also say that, you know, it's nice to see someone coming on and, you know, with, with about a quarter of their portfolio in CTAs because we always say, you know, what you should, everyone should be doing is saying, no, not 60-40, but, but actually, you know, taking some of that our money away from the 6040 and putting a, a, a reasonable sized chunk of it in CTAs and and uh, you know 25% feels to me like a, a pretty reasonable sized allocation so that's, yeah. that's good to hear. Yeah no it's a great it's a great start. <laughs> no and I say that in joking because I know you didn't listen to last week's episode uh, that I did with Rich uh, we talked about that earlier um, but actually Rich had done some calculations where he had been in and done some uh, math and optimization etc cetera, etc cetera. and actually the optimal allocation that he came to um, instead of being kind of, you know, 60-40 type uh, allocation, um, it, it turned into a 40-60, to be more specific, a 64% allocation to to the Sockgen Trend Index, I think it was, uh, or whatever. Yeah. That wouldn't surprise no. me. That wouldn't surprise no. me. But, you, you know, you, you've got to bear in mind that, you know, a theoretically optimal portfolio, I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to tell you the exact number because it's sort of personal sure, sure. information, but, but um, you know, my allocation to CCAs is is, is uh, nowhere near that high, you know, um, because even though I, you know, I don't have to pay fees and I have complete faith in my strategy, um, there, are, there are tax reasons why that's not the case, why it can't be as high as that, um, but um, because I... I can't trade CTAs in my in 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 my sort of tax sheltered accounts, which make up a. Is that the know, Panama account you have? Worth. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, definitely oh, no, not. That's Nothing shelter. offshore. Okay. Yeah, yeah, um, but um, but yeah, I mean, e- even if um, you know, it's certainly not the case that say all of my non-tax sheltered funds are in in C- in in a CTA type strategy. So, you know, even even me who's pretty gung ho about how how great a strategy is, I'd be uncomfortable allocating you know that much of my money into into a about you know a leveraged trading strategy because ultimately there are, there are risks involved with that no matter how good it is or how diversifying it is but uh, 24% you know that that's higher than a lot of institutions and uh, i think we'd be a much bigger industry if everyone put 25% in CTAs that's for sure yeah no absolutely all right well great question now we move on to a couple of questions from uh, Eli a couple of, he writes a couple of questions um for Rob uh, number one, I purchased Rob's books on systematic trading, uh, but I found much of the instructions for setting up and testing rules without overfitting too complex to understand, possibly due to some statistical terminology I'm not familiar with. Are there resources where a complete beginner could learn about relevant statistical concepts as sort of an intro to Rob's book? And question number two, uh, I've heard the topic of trend following on single stocks discussed often on the podcast. The consensus seemed to be that even if you include these in your portfolio, you shouldn't exclusively trend follow single stocks. This is because there's too much correlation between single stocks. To quote Rob in the past, uh, in a past episode, the average correlation between stocks in the S&P 500 is 0.6. My question is, why not build a trend following portfolio of single stocks um, uh, which are optimized for low correlation. For example, you begin. You would begin with a list of all liquid stocks, uh, which are in the thousands, and use some software to select whichever combination of 30 that has the least correlation, uh, meaning within that 30, each stock 
would have a low correlation to the other 29. Using this method, um, you would end up with a sufficient diversified portfolio. I'll let you start with that because there's a long follow-up question, but I'll let you start with that. Um, yeah, so... I mean, I, I do sometimes say to people, you could you could have a look at my my first my sorry my third book, Leverage Trading, which is a is a much more of a, a, a beginner level, um, I guess. Um, that might help, but to be honest, that doesn't really go into you know what I'd call statistical terminology and concepts and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's a tricky one to answer because um, you know I, I like a lot of people, I learn about this stuff at university, and um, you know I, there's not like a single textbook I could point to and and, and say you know. Have a have a look at this. Um, so I don't know whether I I need to write another book. I was just going to suggest that. <laughs> Why not? Uh, you know, s systematic trading for dummies or something. Uh, although I couldn't call it that because, of course, the for dummies is a, a copyrighted term. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I guess you're, you're you're kind of probably I'm I'm I have to have a think about that. I might have to write an article on my blog with some suggestions um, uh, to where that you know I'm not sure I'm the right person to to write a beginner's guide to financial statistics type book. Well, maybe I am, but uh, yeah, I think you're probably stuck with Google uh, and, until or unless I can I can think of a better answer there. Uh, the second question um, is an interesting one actually, and you can kind of say, well, it's not really a question about trading single stocks, because actually you could, you could use this approach with futures, right? You could say there are, you know, 150 liquid liquid futures markets in the world. Um, let's pick the ones with the lowest correlation and trade those. You know, um, that that that's seems, given that, that we're always banging on about how diversification is brilliant, um, but also the fact that you can't um, you know, necessarily trade 150 markets unless you've got a pretty you know, sort of institutional size portfolio, which uh, not everyone listening to the podcast certainly has, then maybe that would be, a, you know, a good thing to do. Um, but there's there's a couple of problems with that, I guess. One is that, uh, and as we, we say pretty frequently, you know, correlation is a linear measure of co-movement, but trend following is an inherently non-linear strategy. Um, you know, it, it's about, um, you know, the things that are happening in the, in the sort of non-normal part of the distribution. Um, so, um, you know, the, the, just because things have got a low, a low correlation doesn't necessarily mean, um, that, that, you know, they're actually going to provide you with a sort of maximally diversified, um, portfolio. Um, the other thing is that, that, um, it may be the case that, um, so the, the, the other thing to say is, um, that, you know, a lot of the time, and I kind of touched on this earlier when I was talking about the dynamic optimization, uh, one of the the the, advance, the reason why you get such a huge increase in improvement when going when diversifying with trend following, and that huge improvement is actually much greater than you would expect if you look at the correlation numbers. Okay, so if you look at the correlation, you'd expect your performance to be, um, you know, maybe two two and a half times better. It's actually close to four five times better, um, and that's the nonlinearity effect coming in there. So I I would be you know basically the 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 problem is that the, the smaller your portfolio of assets regardless of whether they're single stocks or futures the less likely it is that you're and the terminology i like to use that you bought the winning lottery tickets you know that you've got the got one of the lottery tickets that's actually going to win money um you know you may you may pick 30 stocks that have got you know very low correlation and be very happy with yourself um but just by bad luck it's one of the other you know 2000 liquid us stocks that that does really well and actually makes all the money and you you just don't happen to have it um so so yeah i mean it's a it's a nice idea uh, but but i think to if you were to form a portfolio of stocks that was large enough to give you a a reasonable shot at picking up decent trends you'd probably find that 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 
that basket was much more correlated than a basket basket of the same size number of futures, effectively. Uh, and the other problem, of course, and again, this touches back on something I discussed earlier, is correlations change, right? Just because two stocks have got a, a negative or zero or even a negative correlation in the last six months doesn't mean that's likely to, to remain the same in the future. Um, you know, stock, stocks which have very low correlations in something like the the US, um, it's because it's probably because there's there's some really weird idiosyncratic thing going on with that particular stock, um, and and that that's a situation that won't hang around forever. So, for example, I would imagine that the correlation of Twitter with the rest of the US stock market has been pretty low over the last few months because Twitter's in this this weird um, you know takeover uh, situation with with Musk, who may or may not buy it. Um, and therefore, the price of Twitter is not driven by the same factors that are driving the rest of the S&P 500, but driven by, you know, how people think that the legal case in Delaware is going in, in as much as it will force Musk to buy Twitter or not, which he doesn't really want to do anymore. Um, so, that, you know, that's an example of a weird idiosyncratic relationship that's created a temporarily low correlation. Um, but, um, you know, if even when this situation is resolved, um, either Twitter will be, you know, back to being a public company without Musk buying it, in which case it will its correlation will then jump to being much higher again with the rest of all the US. It'll be trading more like a normal US stocks, or of course it will just disappear entirely and become a private company if he's forced to buy it. Um, you know, whatever, whatever those two things happen. Um, so yeah, it's a nice idea, but but I can't help feeling it won't work as well as, as you might expect. You know, and we've talked a lot about this, I think in the past uh, as well. And I, you know, as much as we want to be sort of quantitative in in everything we do um there are certain things that we're not so quantitative about uh in our research process and i think to be fair uh part of that is also market selection and i don't think that there's anything wrong with sometimes applying a little bit of common sense in your kind of quote-unquote research process or market selection process as well um and um and so you know i think your answer uh, also included that so to speak anyways there's a quick follow-up question um, and that goes to, um, no, not maybe a follow-up. Uh, is it a follow-up? Yeah, I think it is a follow-up. It's a yeah. di different topic. Really, it's a little anyway, different yeah. topic, but it is a follow-up. It's from uh, Eli as well. I'm very excited for Rob's return next week. I've already sent a couple of questions for him, but another one occurred to me. I totally understand if this one has to wait for a different time, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's fine. Um, I'm very interested in Rob's continuous moving average crossover system where the size of the position is determined by the distance between the fast and the slow moving average. There is an upper bound which indicates a maximum position uh, and anything under that maximum is calculated as a percentage of that maximum. How do you determine the distance um, which would indicate a maximum position? For example, suppose you have three crossover combinations, 5-day and 20-day, 10 and 40, to 20 and 80. Obviously, you would need to use a different distance in each of these three. Would you perhaps do as follows? Calculate the daily standard deviation for some look back, say, 25 days. Then for each crossover system, multiply the standard deviation by the square root of the slower number. Uh, the result would be used as a distance indicating for maximum position for each crossover set. Is that a valid method? Um... Right. So my position size is actually determined by the distance between the two moving averages divided by the standard deviation. So I'm scaling by the standard deviation. Um, and that that's I basically the way I actually do it is I I measure the absolute size of that number over lots of different futures markets 
to to you know avoid overfitting. Um, and then my maximum position is effectively determined almost arbitrarily. And I basically say, well, I never want to take more than a position that's more than twice that average. Um, so you, if you think about it in risk terms, I kind of go from zero to 100% risk when, you know, instead of an average size position, if, if the forecast gets stronger, in other words, the distance in the moving averages gets bigger, the trend is getting stronger, or it's been around for longer, then that moving, you know, that will increase to 200%, but I don't go any higher, I don't get a higher position than that. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is to avoid um, concentrating too much risk in a single instrument. Um, and the second reason is that actually, if you empirically look at what happens when those forecasts get even bigger, there tends to be mean reversion. Okay, in, in other words, um, you know, just, well, uh, if you think about very fast trading, you, what you're seeing here is sort of a dead cat bounce effect where a very strong downward movement is typically followed by an upward movement, particularly in risk assets like stocks. It's the reverse in something like volatility, of course, like the VIX. Uh, think about slower trading, then what you're seeing is effectively a, a very strong trend will eventually become exhausted. So that that's kind of the story behind that effect. Um, now, because um, so he's talking about taking the, the the distance between the moving averages and then multiplying by um, a standard deviation, blah blah blah. So I think in terms of the units he's using, it's right because um, you know he's not dividing by a standard deviation, so it makes sense to multiply by one because. Obviously, the distance in the moving averages can get bigger and bigger the longer your look back is. You know, if you've got a short look back, the distance isn't going to be that big. Um, and then, but then he's saying multiplying by the, the square root of the slower number again, using the square root of the look back. Again, that makes sense, kind of quantitatively, if you like. Um, but 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 what I'm not really convinced about because I have never done this myself is whether the scaling is going to be correct. So I don't know whether that. The upper bound that will give you would make would be kind of would make sense, you know. If that if, if you know, so um, I can't really. It sounds like it's a reasonably sensible method, but what I would the, the thing I would emphasize with anyone who's trying something new is, you know, back test it, see what that looks like, see what that maximum position looks like. So if you're hitting that maximum position, say ten percent of the time, yeah, that's probably about right. You know, that that's probably what you want to do. If you're hitting that max position ninety percent of the time, that max position is way too tight. You know. If you're never hitting that maximum position, well, it's not doing anything. You know, just you're wasting your time again because you've got an in increased complexity in your system that's not actually having any effect whatsoever on your trading patterns. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it sounds like um, Eli is kind of reasonably quantitatively switched on. I'm going to just keep using that word now. Um, so I'm sure they're capable of, 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 of doing that exercise. Uh, and that, that's what I do as a kind of sense check. I mean, it sounds to me like the units are correct, you know, um, but but I, I don't know whether the kind of absolute value that would come out of that process would be would be about the right number. The only way to check that would be to actually to test it and see what it looks like. Okay, let's move on. We have a quick question from Doogie. Uh, Doogie is interested in how you would determine what would you you would be looking for in order to kind of um, decide or, or determine um, how much capital you can run in uh, in your system. He talks about if your uh, capital goes up by quite a large number. I don't think that the number he quotes is necessarily uh, realistic. Um, so I think it's more of a, 
I'd rather rephrase the question into more of a general um, question about what you would be looking for. Um, I guess it goes to uh, capacity. What's the capacity of a strategy? Um, and um, and so that we don't uh, overstep that. Um, so how, how do you think about that? Um, so, I, okay, so we can think about capacity in a couple of different ways. So one is um, costs. So, the, you know, if you're trading one contract at a time, you know, you're unlikely to be incurring much in the way of cost because you're almost certainly going to, worst case scenario, is you get, you know, you get filled at the best bid or the best offer. Um, if you're trading, you know, a thousand contracts at a time, well, you know, clearly then then it's very unlikely you're going to get filled there. And also you're, you're going to have what the, the market microstructure call, people call a, a permanent impact on the price as well. Um, so, you know, if you're putting in a thousand lot orders every five minutes, then the market's going to be like, well, hang on a second, there's a big player here and they're going to start pushing the price away from you in advance of, of what you're doing. And your, 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 you know, your effective cost is going to be much higher than you you would have anticipated. Um, the other thing is is um, is volume. So, um, you know, you don't and it, these these things are related, but not necessarily. So, you know, if you're a big percentage of the volume of a market, it's quite likely that you're um, you're also you know, going to be paying higher costs. Um, but but in terms of open interest, because the relationship to an open interest and volume is not the same for every market. So you can think about markets where the open interest is quite small, but there's a huge volume. Uh, I, I call these gamblers markets. There's not a lot of people with real positions, a lot of people turning over um, speculative positions. Uh, in a market like that, you may think that your position is not that big um, because you're, you're trading a, a quite a small percentage of the volume. But you could be half the open interest, um, and that's potentially a dangerous position to be in if, if the market moves sharply against you, because all of those speculators will just disappear, and you'll be stuck with your half an o- half the open interest and, and not be able to do much about it. Um, but that that's normally a second order problem. So you normally run into problems with costs before you run into problems with being too big a proportion of the open interest. So let's just focus on the costs. So um, if your portfolio is small enough. Um, you can basically run what I would, uh, you know, and indeed where we've been talking earlier about the problems of having a portfolio that's too small, right? Um, so actually, at the, at the moment, my, my portfolio is effectively too small in many ways. Um, and um, it would take, um, you know, quite a lot of additional capital. Um, so, you know, if, if I had, say, uh, 100 times more capital than I've got, which would put me up to $50 million, which is kind of a s- sort of small to medium-sized institutional size of capital, um, I could I, I could tr- trade, still be trading in exactly the same way I'm trading now, but I wouldn't have to. I would be able to trade all the markets rather than having to do dynamic optimization. So I, my improve, performance would improve, but I wouldn't be doing anything fundamentally different. Okay, I would be. It basically, you know, it, there'd be certain markets that were too expensive for me to trade, but that cost is nothing to do with. It's not to do with the size that I'm trading at. They're just too damn expensive anyway. There'll be certain markets that are too illiquid to trade. Again, it's nothing to do with size. They're just too damn illiquid. They just don't even meet a very basic minimum floor. The interesting thing then is when you start to go beyond that, right? So if you go from, say, 50 to 100 to 250 to $500 million and upwards to that, and, you know, back in the day I was, you know, I was at a hedge fund that was $30 billion at one point while I was there. So then you've really got to start worrying about this stuff. Um, so what will happen gradually as you move up that um, is there are markets where, you know, there are less liquid markets where your costs are going to start to look too high because, you know, the market where you could do one lot a day 
and it, that was fine because although it wasn't very liquid, that one lot a day was, was fine. Now you're trying to do 10 lots, 100 lots a day in a market where the volume's only, say, 500 lots a day, you're going to be having a big impact on that market. Um, so the, the, you've basically got two main options that you can follow. One is you can slow down your trading. So in that mar particular market, you say, well, I'm going to just slow my trading right down. That will deal with the cost issue, but it won't deal with the open interest issue because you will still be potentially quite a large proportion of the open interest, even if your your volume's lower and therefore your costs aren't too bad. And the other thing you could do, of course, is reduce your allocation to that market. So the, the main thing that will happen, you know, assuming you use that second approach, um, which is probably the more sensible of the two, because slowing down can only get you so far, doesn't deal with the open interest problem effectively your portfolio will gradually shift from being one that's maximally diversified to one where i mean ultimately if you imagine your your you know this kind of unicorn 100 billion dollar cta that, that, that no one no one's that big i don't think at the moment um you know your portfolio is going to be dominated by the big liquid futures markets and your allocation to the smaller markets is going to be just just a rounding error it's just going to be tiny um so you know when i was at ahl running the fixed income portfolio you know, we had more money than we would like in, say, the US Treasury markets because we were so big that we couldn't put as much as we would like in, say, you know, a much smaller market, a much smaller fixed income market, like, I don't know, five-year, I don't know, five-year engine interest rate swaps, for example. Um, that could only ever be a tiny, tiny part of our market. Whereas, you know, for, for someone who was running, say, 5% of that, 20, a 20th of that sort of size of capital, they would be able to have a maximally diversified Sort of set of uh, instruments. So the interesting thing about futures is there's kind of a real sweet spot that doesn't really exist in equities. Um, in the same way, there's this real sweet spot of somewhere between fifty to two hundred and fifty million dollars, where you can trade all the futures you want to trade. You you've got reasonable kind of management fee coming in to to sort of bring in reasonable resources, but you're not yet at the point where you have to start kind of undiversifying your portfolio because you're just too big. Um, so that that's kind of the, 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 the sort of the sweet spot to be in in that sense. All right, good stuff. Let's move on to a question, actually two questions from Adam. Adam writes, hope you're doing well. Great show as always. I have a question regarding running multiple systems, uh, multiple different systems and all parameters together. I understand that there are two different approaches to this. Combining signals from different systems to form a one main forecast signal which tells you the confidence you have in a trade or therefore the position size um, that should be taken. And then he says, uh, Rob's approach, if I understand it correctly, so um, you have to address that. And all splitting risk across multiple systems, which all trade independently according to the rules of each specific system. What do you and your guests consider the pros and cons of each? What are your thoughts here? I think you should kick off on this one, Niels. I feel like I've been talking a lot. No, I will. Um... <laughs> Well, I think, you know, from a simplistic point of view, you could say that uh, having them run independently. So I think for most people who want to do this themselves, that's probably not a bad way. You would have to do your thorough back testing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and in a sense, your total exposure to each market will reflect kind of the confidence that you have overall using different types of approaches. Um now, then, you, then, Adam, you write about combining signals from distant systems to form one main forecast signal. Um, and yeah, there probably will be some differences to doing it the other way, 
um, especially maybe on on not. Um, it also depends on how you do your your risk management. Um, but if you have multiple ways of 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 generating a signal at the end of the day, whether you say it's a different you know separate systems and you form it into one uh, signal, or you have um, different systems doing their own thing, but getting into again one exposure at the end of the day. I mean, I wonder how much of a difference it, it means at the end of the day, uh, depending on how you manage the overall risk uh, of your portfolio. Um, but if you're doing this um, probably more on your kind of individual investor basis, to some extent maybe running the um, systems uh, separately, it also, it also might be more, it more, might be easier to monitor what the actual risks are um, in, your, um, in, your, in your trading program as a whole. Yeah, I, I guess that the advantage of doing things separately is it's more transparent. It's like less of a black. Yeah. It's more transparent, yeah. right? So you can very easily say, "Well, this systems did these trades, and therefore this is its performance." Blah blah blah. Um, I mean, there are some difficulties with that as well. So you have to be very careful. For example, especially if you're running an automated system, that you don't have potentially two systems trying to do the opposite trade at the same time because that's actually illegal. Um, it also, you know, it would be kind of stupid if you had one system that bought. And paid the bid offer, and then five minutes of the one came in and sold, paid the bid offer. When, of course, if those two trades had been netted, then you know that would have been an advantage. Yeah, yeah no, I was just going to add to that. Um, when I'm yeah. talking about these things, I'm thinking about an end of day system whereby if you do run separate systems before you generate the order, it would combine Everything the order up. so you yeah, don't yeah, do yeah, 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 yeah. silly stuff yeah, like yeah. that. I agree yeah, with you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, but just taking a step back. So even if, if you say combine things at the position level, which is what you're talking about, I think that's probably the the latest I'd want to combine anything. Um, yeah, the, the advantage of transparency. There are some disadvantages. I mean, it depends on how complicated your your you know your your, your systems are. But so, for example, I do these things around risk management that make most sense at a kind of total position level. Um, so if I was to do, or at a total forecast level, if I was to do those individually for each system, I might get some weird interactions and I'd be doing things more than once and it would be a bit more difficult for me to think about in that sense. So yeah, it, it's, I think it's a lot down to personal choice. And to be honest, I don't think it's one of these things that people should spend too much time worrying about. You know, there are, there are bigger fish to fry. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We've got a f only a few more questions, uh, left, um, Question from Michael. It's super short. I've noticed that your, and that, that is your, uh, Rob, trailing vol is down to 7.1%, the lowest since your system started in 2013. What's behind this? Question mark. I mean, weak, weak forecasts, basically. So, um, yeah, just just not very strong trends over the last few months in, in many markets. I mean, the other thing that could be driving its correlation so it might be that i just happen to have a set of positions on that are that are sort of hedged if you like because uh, that would also reduce my my volatility so i mean just just looking at my positions um you know that this they're a bit of a mishmash i don't really see anything there that's kind of hedged per se um so so yeah i don't i don't think it's being driven by you know some kind of weird hedging effect i, I think it is just just weak forecasts it's just not very much going on there in the markets at the moment at least as far as my system's concerned yeah all right. Last question is from Toby. I say Toby. It could be Rob. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, this this one is suspicious, actually. <laughs> yeah. I, I I think if this is is this Toby from Australia? 
because I think I know who this yeah, is. Yeah, it's from Sydney, so it would be Australia. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I know, I know who yeah. this is. Hi, Toby. Yeah, okay, fair enough. It's not me. It's not me, but he is somebody I know quite well. But I didn't honestly didn't ask well, him to ask Well, I can only imagine question. that you must be on page eight now on acknowledgement for your new book, just going to Top Traders Unplugged in terms of all <laughs> the plugs we're doing for your book. But anyway, as always, I will, of course, provide the question. Hi, Rob. You have an excellent book and blog. Thanks for all of your contributions. Could you spend some time on the podcast explaining your new book? Oh, oh my God. It is very suspicious, isn't it? It really is. Uh, explaining the new book, right. Well, um, okay, the first thing to say is the book is actually very well, doing well in terms of, you know, its construction at the moment. So uh, uh, Niels normally asks me. I to, didn't ask you this time what, because I knew this question no, was coming. You knew this was coming, yeah. exactly. So. Uh, it's just about to go to the the typesetting stage, so the kind of all of the the letters and the words are in the right place. It's just a question of making it look nice, um, and um, I mean that that apparently will take quite a long time because the book isn't due to be out till April next year. So uh, this is you know apparently this is quite a slow, cumbersome process. But then it is a lot, quite a big book and quite technical with lots of equations and graphs and stuff. So maybe that's to be expected. Um, so um, yeah, it's coming out in April, um, and you know my main contribution is kind of pretty much done i'm gonna to have to do some final proofreading but that's pretty much it and i've got to also put together a set of resources for the book so spreadsheets and python code that people can use so that that's all i've got left to do really in terms of describing the book it's called advanced futures trading strategies so that kind of gives it away um, but it's not really what you might expect in terms of being a kind of well here's a here's a, here's a here's strategy number one here's strategy number two here's strategy number three and they're all kind of different ways of trading the market. So, if, for example, you're familiar with uh, Perry Kaufman's um, big um, big book whose name has temporarily escaped me. I'm just trying to have a quick look on my shelves to see if I can see the title. That, don't don't worry about it. I... Yeah. So, Perry Kaufman's written this very large book about trading strategies, um, and that that's kind of not specifically for futures, I should add. It's a great book, though. Um, it's not like that at all. So, it, it's, the more, it's written more in a kind of way to both build up the un people's understanding of the futures markets but also to to kind of explain how effectively a journey where you go from just owning futures and not doing anything very much with them which exposes you to the characteristics of the underlying assets so for example in you know if you take an asset like equities you've got negative skew you've got reasonable returns over a, you know pretty good sharp ratio long only but that may be of course be you know, not likely to be repeated from now onwards. Um, you know, you've got fat tails and so on. And then explaining what happens is you just do layer that with different and more complex trading strategies until, you know, and it, so it's sort of effect, almost effectively explain the transformative, transformative nature of trading strategies. You know, so how does trend following affect the underlying asset? How does carry affect the underlying asset? Um, so the first part of the book is very much like that. And it all, you know, it goes into a lot of um, things, you know, it, so it's not just about trading strategies. It actually, I think in a way, hopefully explains, an, you know, the the way the futures markets, what's going on underneath them. So these ideas about things I've talked about in this episode, like, you know, the fact that a lot of the trends in, in, in futures could be explained if you look at the asset class level. And here's a strategy that happens to capture that effect. Um, so I, I would hope that people wouldn't wouldn't expect it to be, you know, oh, here's, here's 30 is, is there 30 different trading strategies of what is, I think it's much, 
I mean, this sounds quite pompous, to be honest, but it's 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 much more than that. It is really about getting across to people the you know the the kind of intricacies and the the, the you know that what's going on underneath the hood in futures markets and how trading strategy seeks to exploit that. Um, I mean, so yeah, the first the first part of the book is kind of goes from very 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 basic, you know, just literally buy and hold a single contract, up to a uh, you know the, the the last strategy in part one is a mixture of um, trend following at different speeds and carry. And then the second part of the book kind of goes into more advanced stuff about trend following and carry. So, for example, you know, what happens if you trend follow the spot price rather than the back adjusted futures price? You know, um, can you or should you try and trade, um, you know, to try, should you try and time trend and carry? How does different volatility environments affect trend and carry? Um, and then, and then the third part of the book is sort of other, what I call other directional strategies. So it's things like yeah, this this asset class um, trend stuff, um, and um, the you know and um, mean reversion within asset classes, cross sectional carry, and so on and so forth. Um, and then um, the final part of that book goes into detail about dynamic optimization. So if that's something you want to understand more about, that's covered there. Um, and then the fourth part of the book is about faster trading strategies, so more intraday, basically mean reversion. Now, we know mean reversion is a very dangerous strategy, right? It's def- it's a convergent rather than a divergent strategy. So I introduce this very dangerous strategy and say, don't trade this. <laughs> and the next chapter, I explain how to make it safer by introducing a trend following overlay and a volatility scaling overlay. And then part five is about relative value. So it's about trading spreads, butterflies, both across app, across instruments, but also calendar spreads within instruments. And Moritz, for example, has, has had a lot of success with that. So that, that's potentially something people would find quite interesting, I think. And then the final part I call tactics rather than strategy because it's about things like when should you roll? Things that, things that seem like really simple questions like, well, you know, which contract should you hold? When should you roll it? You know, how, how should you manage the cash in your portfolio? You know, um, how should you do your execution? You know, um, how should you do your risk management? So it's these other things that could almost fill a book in themselves, but things that, that people, the, the sort of non-sexy part of, of the futures trading. So, so yeah, I mean, I've, I've tried to do almost a brain dump of everything I, I know or think I know about futures trading specifically and about, and, and the sort of research I've done, you know, um, over the last um, crikey, I think it's been nearly it's been nine years now since I I started uh, out by myself. So uh, there's quite quite you know I'm trying to condense an awful lot into that book, but hopefully in a way that kind of leads people along a journey uh, and gives them a, a much deeper understanding of 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 this you know interesting and, and weird world of futures trading. Yeah, well, sounds exciting, and obviously not that long to go before we uh, we get it out and yeah. we can all I mean you can yeah. I if I'm allowed to make one final plug you can if you go to my my uh, social media or website um, there is a link there to pre-order the book so you know, absolutely get, get in there now of course right we've been going for a while um I don't know if you want to go into some of the topics no I think you're right let's just uh, leave it with all the questions there's kind of a Q&A session today which is great um, since it had been a few uh, months since you were last here. So I hope everyone got uh, the answers they needed. And of course, as always, um, you can send in questions to the upcoming guest um, on info at toptradersunplugged.com. Next week, I'm joined by Mark for another fun and insightful conversation. And no doubt he will have brought um, some uh, great topics with him as well. 
Um, but do send your questions if you have anything specific you want us to bring up. From Rob and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.